All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. We've got the Thanksgiving edition, the turkey edition here. Uh, we're joined by, per usual, Santi, and we are joined by special guest, Mr. Nick Carter. Nick, welcome to uh, Empire, my friend. Hello. Thanks for having me. First time. Where, where are you celebrating uh, Thanksgiving, man? In uh, the D.C. area, actually, where I grew up. So finally left Miami. All right. There you go. Yeah. I feel like you've, uh, you've, like, you've become a real like Miami guy now, so I'm, I'm surprised you left. Yeah, I know. I'm really kind of lamenting it because it's like 30 degrees here and it was 80 degrees and sunny in Miami, but uh, it happens. Here's what we're talking about today, folks. We're talking about Genesis and DCG. We're talking about uh, Bitcoin miners. We're talking about Aave and CRV stuff. And we are talking about proof of reserves and proof of solvency. So I think the best place to start is Genesis. Let me give the like, as I know it situation. So it looks like Genesis um, is kind of on the, the verge of bankruptcy, I would call it here. Uh, as reported over the weekend, so Genesis was initially trying to raise a billion dollars to fill this big hole in their balance sheet. I think they asked Binance to invest. Binance declined, citing that it, I think Binance cited that it could lead to a conflict of interest down the road, which I didn't fully understand. My, if I'm Binance, I'm like, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole because of U.S. regulators. So then basically, they're trying to raise a billion. That didn't work out. They then cut the desired funding in half from a billion to 500 million. Um, they noted on, noted on Monday that they're at risk of bankruptcy without the new funding. Now there are fears that this like potential Genesis bankruptcy is spilling over to the parent company, DCG. Um, DCG has a, has a liability, I think, out to Genesis of about like 550 or 575 million. That's due May of 2023. Um, the loans, as they said, were those, those loans were used to uh, fund investment opportunities and to repurchase stock from non-employee shareholders. Barry sent this letter to shareholders. It was kind of this like, basically just like calming people's fears. Hey, we're all good. We don't need to raise capital right now. We might need to raise in the future. Kind of this fluffy shareholder letter, a as you would expect. So Nick, I'm just curious to get your take on the unfolding Genesis D DCG situation right now. I, it, it's a scandal. Um, I find I think this uh, revelation of the 575 line of credit out to DCG from Genesis is pretty shocking. Actually, it looks like they're just plundering Genesis, dipping into the cookie jar to fund uh, buybacks for DCG, which uh, seems pretty irregular. Um, unclear what's going to happen with Genesis. Obviously, they've taken a number of different hits here, starting with uh, UST, I think. They did that disastrous trade, um, then moving on to um, you know, kind of all the subsequent credit events that hurt them. And uh, now the question is, does Barry have enough sort of family silver to sell off to keep the empire afloat? And um, I think it all comes down to the grayscale franchise, whether they're able, of course, they own roughly 10% of GBDC. Are they able to restore that discount to something manageable? Um, worst case, do they have to liquidate the trust? Um, or do they have to sell it off to another asset manager? Um, the, the, he kind of struck a brave tone and defiant tone in the note, but, uh, the reality on the ground looks pretty bleak, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand. I might be totally missing a capital allocation decision here, but I feel like we keep seeing companies that are, uh, pulling out these massive amount of like levering up basically to make these illiquid investment decisions. So one of the reasons they said that they took the loans out were to fund investment opportunities. When I think about an investment opportunity, that's on a horizon of maybe, I mean, they, they have a 
huge portfolio, you know, venture portfolio, like you, you don't, you don't take out six month loans or 12 month loans or 18 month loans to fund an illiquid three to 10 year investment strategy that I go, like, that I, I just feel like I'm missing something here or, or maybe they were just incredibly optimistic. They thought the bull market continued, but I mean, what am I missing here, Nick? Yeah, it appears that that was kind of the case that you get now this maturity mismatch where you have potentially short-term liabilities with the withdrawals from Genesis, as we've seen this bank run-like phenomena happening in the industry. And now their asset portfolio is illiquid. It's, you know, DCG equity. And it's unclear how easy it is for them to um, you know, actually render that liquid. Or it might be the remainder of the DCG portfolio, which is a lot of private equity. So it, I, I'm not at all comparing it to FTX in terms of like FTX was clearly incredibly mismanaged. I'm not saying that's the case with DCG, but I agree. Like Genesis has short-term obligations, but unfortunately it appears that a lot of their liquid capital was redeployed into illiquid long-term assets. And now they're in this huge mess trying to raise capital on short notice, which I think they probably will be able to do. But it's not an enviable. Do you think they'll be able to raise the capital? You're saying? Yeah, I, I think they they have a number of avenues to do that. Um, there's, you know, the DCG family has all sorts of different things. They have the enormous venture portfolio. They've been among the most prolific venture investors in the crypto space. They have liquid crypto assets. They hold GBDC, of course. That is not at a valuation where you'd want to sell it right now. And then, you know, they have this cash generative asset in the form of Grayscale uh, with the fee stream associated. So I don't know. Overall, I think they do have sort of avenues here. But yeah, I mean, kind of a tough situation yeah. they found themselves yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're D if you're DCG, they have a bunch of, uh, I mean, they're basically sitting with a balance sheet. They have debt that exceeds their assets, right? And they have limited liquidity. But they also have Grayscale, which produces like, you know, it spits off like 250 or 300 million a year in fees and their AUM is locked. So I guess DCG, the hold co should be able to raise money. Um, if, if it can kind of limit, limit those Genesis liabilities. Um, Santi, where, where, where do you think we go from here? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, I don't disagree with what you guys have said. Like, I think, uh, from the asset side of the house, like <clears throat> I think all that started here was certainly like, Luna arrow, three arrows blow up, put them in a big hole. Um, and also it sounds like they've been just doing the same degen trade that a lot of funds have, like three arrows have done, which is just doing this recursive leverage to are about GBTC, right? I mean, they're the largest holder of GBTC. They own like close to 10% of it. You just assume that they're not going to be able to touch that. Like there's some appetite in the market. Uh, the, the, the discount dipped all the way to kind of 50%, 47%, 50%, and then it got bought back. Like ARC stepped in and bought a bunch. But I just find, I just, just assume that that is not going to be liquid. They're not going to want to touch it, I think, because then they would just crush the market. Um, yeah, okay, you have two, 300 million of ARR from, you know, the Grayscale franchise, but uh, I don't know. Historically, like yeah. they've at the peak, like that was generating close to a billion, right? Because asset prices are down like a bunch. And so the latest valuation was 10 billion. So, like on a P basis, it, it didn't get much. And it's kind of like uh, 
Galaxy Digital, right? It trades very close to book value. Um, I think this is a better business, I think, just purely because of Grayscale. But <clears throat> the question that I have in my mind is, if Barry is who I, you know, from a net worth standpoint, I think you could probably like cover and, and inject cap more capital. The question is, does he really want to do it? Just like let Genesis fall. Like why have why have we gone this far? I when do. He could just have stepped in two weeks ago. I know he's been like plugging the hole, but the holes. Can we just also talk about the whole set of communications has been very bizarre. Like in a in a time in a market where you don't want to do that, time, like every company in crypto now is just being really cautious with their communication. And it's like it never ends well when lawyers take over communications because you know shit has really hit the fan. And I'm wondering if that's the case here as well. <laughs> There is one suggestion that I have. I don't know if they're taking feedback right now, but I think one way to clo substantially close the discount would be to commit, not today, but to some point in the future to winding up the trust, um, which they could do as the trustee. It's sort of unilateral. And um, I think if you create a just a market signal that at some point you intend to wind it down the trust in a year or two or three years, you say there is going to be this event where it will convert it, you know, at par to the underlying. I think that closes the discount substantially. Nick, is that the same overnight? Or is that, that Reg that M? Help. Yeah. Um, this is just more messaging. I would say I don't think you even need SEC approval to say you know put out a blog post saying we intend to actually at some point eventually wind it down. I believe Reg M, um, I think the discussion around that was could uh, Grayscale, could DCG itself um, just do a one-time redemption of their own 10% of uh, GBDC uh, at par, which I think would be, um, you know, be met with allegations of unfairness because, mm -hmm. you know, they would just be, extricating their own shares and retail wouldn't be able to get out. Um, so this is more just a messaging thing, which, which I, I don't know if, you know, that's feasible or not, but that's sort of what I'd do in their shoes. Yeah. But it's, huh. I struggle to, to, this is the proposal Selkis was pushing for as well. And even in like Barry, in what scenario would he want to let go of a 200, a potentially a billion dollar AR business? It's just the incentives are not there, right? If I mean, if you expect that there'll be an ETF conversion in say thirty six months, um, you could you might as well say, okay, well we're going to lose this the bulk of this fee stream anyway, or it'll come down substantially. So you might as well say it's a mm -hmm. wash. You know, maybe we'll get that SEC, the the ETF conversion eventually. So we might as well just commit to this, but anyway, uh, e or risk even losing if the you whole do business. that though. Because my understanding is that the plug is roughly two billion, right? The mismatch is close to two billion, and so if they were to sell all ten percent of their stake, assuming they they're able to do that gracefully, and maybe they're they divest other assets, like I struggled to see how they come up in a, like a restructuring scenario and they've hired Mollis, I think, or Genesis has hired Mollis or Lazard, I think to advise on the restructuring. 
it's difficult to see how they kind of plug this gap without an infusion. Um, and even if they were to try to fire sale some of these assets, uh, it probably wreaks a lot of havoc in the market. I mean, I think there's, if, if they don't go the reg M option, which I don't think they'll do, there, there's basically two options, right? Like D, DCG either, it comes down to what the, if they can agree to a deal with the Genesis creditors, like I think it was Selkis who laid this out, like option A, DCG negotiates re- resolution with Genesis creditors. Everyone avoids bankruptcy. DCG survives. It's option A. Option B is creditors reject the deal. Genesis goes into bankruptcy. Years of court battles, likely the same bad result for DCG. So it seems like those are the two options here. And, and it really comes down to, can they agree to a resolution with Genesis creditors or not? So. Nick, do you have a sense of where this plays out with uh, with D- you, you? You think Genesis? Uh, excuse me. You think DCG is going to be fine here? I mean, the asset is pretty substantial, and I'm not going to say diversified, but they have a bunch of different revenue streams um, over the entire um, apparatus. Um, Barry has been historically one of the best entrepreneurs in the space. If there's anyone that can extricate themselves from this, I think it's them. And I do think they have the credibility to raise here. Uh, of course, capital is pretty tight right now and crypto looks toxic. But uh, if I were a betting man, I would say they're able to actually extricate themselves from this. I wanted to ask you, Nick. So the last valuation was at $10 billion. That was like over a year ago. Um, they raised from a few folks. Um, um, historically, I think he's rofered a lot of the secondary um, from employees and whatnot. Uh, and that is the thing come to light here where they use some of the capital, like they borrowed some capital from Genesis to buy out, um, you know, other investors in the cap table. I think Barry historically has wanted to clean up the cap table and just been very aggressive in buying back shares. At what valuation would you invest? Assuming that Barry opens up a round for DCG. Now, this is just purely speculative, but is there a price here that you would feel really um, interested in? Is it 1 billion? Is it 2 billion? Is it five? What's that magic number for you? Yeah, good question. I mean, I'm not. Uh, my expertise is certainly not investing in distressed uh, financials, um, but I mean, just based on comparables, I would say what I'm seeing in the market is anywhere from a forty to fifty percent discount on those rounds that were done in 2021. Is kind of where I'd expect this to trade. Yeah, yeah. Because if you were to do with some of the parts, like you have CoinDesk. You have a pretty substantial venture portfolio, illiquid, but there's some value there. If uh, Foundry, you could argue, has some value or none. Um, then you have DCG, uh, sorry, Grayscale. And so the, the real prize here is, I think, Grayscale. Um, and then to your point, I think the biggest question is, how long can that stream of cash flow continue? 200, 300, 400, 500. It's, it's really predictable other than this binary risk, but you take a discount on that. It's a really attractive asset. Um, so you know, I do agree with you. I think, I think they'll be able to get the deal done. The only thing that I'm like really kind of don't understand is Barry, for someone that historically has been very aggressive in buying out existing shareholders, has been A, very silent. The communication from Genesis has been very cryptic and panel recognition like it has all the red flags that other you know folks recently have like fdx and three hours like you know what i mean like in luna like the communications there have been 
very erratic and inconsistent to the point where they like kept retracing right and so there's not much confidence i i i think that we're operating here without with obviously imperfect information but yeah it's it's fairly concerning that he hasn't at this point stepped in and just like plugged the gap himself i think Nick, do you think it's a- concerning do you think it's uh, concerning that Grayscale won't share their proof of reserves due to like quote unquote security concerns? Well, that's really on Coinbase. You know, they custody the funds with Coinbase. Um, I'm not going to speak for Coinbase, but you know, from what I understand, they've historically resisted doing POR due to the uh, the view that it leaks too much privacy and it maybe requires them to reconfigure their setup, uh, which is pretty arcane, actually. Coinbase doesn't just have everything in a couple of cold wallets. It's much more complex than that. So that's sort of really in Coinbase's, you know, the ball's in their court. Um, And it's just unfortunate that they can't provide the pass-through assurance. But I don't have any doubts whatsoever that they have the funds. I mean, they're an audited public company, and they did break out the user deposits on the platform in their last uh, filing. So um, I consider that as good as a proof of reserve is just the fact that they're a public company and they have their audited financials. So that doesn't give me any concern really. You know, nevertheless, I would say disappointing, especially as everybody else is doing proof of reserve now. Yeah. Well, Nick, I want to ask you a question. Obviously there's other creditors uh, of Genesis, you don't have to talk about your particular situation, but uh, is that something that you know of? Like how um, flexible and willing are these creditors um, willing to like just buy more time um, to play this out? Kind of this multiple scenarios and just because I think a lot of the a lot of the liabilities were due now, right? As you as you want as you got withdrawals and they couldn't match them. So I'm curious if you have had conversations with a lot of the creditors, depositors of Genesis and what the thinking there is, if there's a coordinated action group to figure out a a situation. Yeah. Good question. We're not ourselves creditors of Genesis. Um, And that's actually maybe the biggest question mark hanging over this whole thing is who they are. There's a distinct lack of clarity. Um, you know, I've been trying to determine uh, what that creditor base uh, consists of, and it's very hard to find out. Um, I would guess that there's some other Gemini Earn type platforms where you have white label mm-hmm. platforms that yeah. are giving folks access to those yields via Genesis. Um, but yeah, we've we've been trying to figure that out ourselves and and have had very little luck so far. I wonder if you could see a situation where Genesis creditors end up just basically rolling their claims into DCG, uh, DCG warrants, basically. That that actually feels like a potential potential situation here. Yeah, you have like a senior claim on like the stream of cash from Grayscale. Right. That seems to me like I'll take I would take that. Like it basically I refinance mean, the debt into into DCG debt. Like like Ge- Gemini could probably also cooperate here they have like 350 to 300 350 i think is the aggregate uh of their program earn program and so i think they could probably like work something out um if you're a a large fund or what have you you might have redemptions which is probably tricky but 
Yeah, this is the biggest question mark. And I, I think I'd love to see more clarity. If anyone has thoughts, please post them and we can bring you on next week. <clears throat> yeah. Cool. Anything else on, on DCG Genesis? Nick, any last thoughts here? No, all good. Cool. Um, all right, Nick, throwing you into uh, the fire for the next one. It feels like it's a, it just like a continued Bitcoin miner bloodbath out there. Um, I was trying to decipher some of this data. It seems like the most aggressive miner selling that we've seen in like since I, since I've that I've ever seen. I think I'm, there's probably been a worse time than this, but from the data I was looking at, it seems like the worst or the most aggressive miner selling that I've ever seen. Um, and it just seems like if the prices, it seems like right now if the prices don't go up, we're going to see a lot of Bitcoin miners out of business. We, I think we've been saying this though for for months. So, and we haven't seen folks go out of the business. Maybe one of the reasons folks haven't gone out of business yet is because they had access to capital through these lenders. But now that the lenders don't exist, uh, or that they're, they've kind of closed up shop for a little bit, um, maybe maybe that maybe that's like the the straw that breaks the camel's back. So, what's the kind of state of Bitcoin miners today? Yeah, I, I was at the Texas Blockchain Summit this week, um, which is always well attended by miners, and the atmosphere was pretty grim. I mean, as I said on stage, miners have faced a quadruple whammy. Bitcoin price has fallen, interest rates have risen, so financing costs are up. Uh, hash rate has risen dramatically, especially with the merge. The merge had an effect on Bitcoin hash rate as some uh, mining farms converted into mining Bitcoin and um, power prices have gone up, obviously. And uh, so that basically put the whole mining sector out of business almost. These miners have been operating unprofitably for the last few months. They've just been mining in order to cover their interest payments for the most part. So they're not making money on every unit of Bitcoin that they mine. They're losing money. Uh, what you'll see now will be continued consolidation, continued collapse, insolvencies in the mining sector, uh, especially as so these minor financing businesses will start repossessing ASICs that they were uh, lending against. That's happening right now. You'll see some more bankruptcies. Um, maybe a handful of well-capitalized miners will survive, the ones without as much debt. Uh, but yeah, I mean, really disastrous sector. It's kind of been overlooked because of all the other issues we've seen in crypto. But uh, yeah, one of the toughest corners of crypto right now, most of those public miners have underperformed Bitcoin even this year. So kind of a shocking space For, right uh, now. Maybe the less um, or unfamiliar listeners, can you explain this relationship between hash rate and the adjustment there and the difficulty? Like, you know, because a lot of times people, like maybe for an unsuspecting listener, say, wait a minute, does this like put in jeopardy does this risk the security of the bitcoin network if a lot of these miners go offline and energy prices continue to persist and be high into next year like how, how does that work because i know there's some nuance there that perhaps listeners might appreciate yeah i would say the hash rate figure is pretty much arbitrary so i don't think there's a linear relationship between bitcoin hash rate or difficulty and the security of Bitcoin, really, you know, it's just a function of the revenue um, expended on or, you know, the revenue that validators can earn, which is a function of the issuance rate, which is fixed and obviously falls every four years, plus fees, which fees are de minimis right now. 
And so that's really your measure of security is kind of the cost in, I guess, dollar terms to gain sufficient share of, of hash rate to interfere with the protocol. And, you know, minor economics are kind of exogenous. I mean, the miners go out of business and new miners pop up, you know, that's just the normal churn. I guess for the sake of decentralization, all of that said, it's still not a great phenomenon that the miners um, are consolidating right now because it means there will be fewer miners coming out of this crisis. It'll probably consolidate into a few larger miners. So you may not like that feature, but overall, um, what I would expect to see here is uh, hash rates start to come down. I think miners will start to underclock their ASICs. So to economize on energy costs, they'll run the ASICs a little slower, basically. And of course, some of these ASICs will just end up uh, being repossessed and there'll be some latency before they can be turned back on again. Um, so I do think hash rate will come down here. But there's no like level of hash rate where I consider Bitcoin secure or insecure, so to speak. The hash rate figure is kind of arbitrary. Me, I, what I look at more is like what's the aggregate level of security spent on the network. So I would worry if like in ten years' time fees don't materialize, kind of thing. But yeah. I wouldn't say it's it's insecure now. You know, even if mine has got a business. On the fee side of things, I mean, there have been some fairly positive developments on the Lightning Network. Uh, I don't know if you want to touch on that in, in that context, because, I mean, my understanding now is th this this question comes up over and over, N not as fought, but just as the what's the security budget of Bitcoin in perpetuity? And a lot of people say, wait, in perpetuity is a tough question. Like things are going to change a lot. We don't really know it's a problem that can be addressed in 30 years. But it's something that I do think about a lot, uh, and I think there's others in the Bitcoin community like James Presswich and others that have introduced this more of a debate of what happens and how do we kind of – I'm curious if you have a view there, you know, this idea that there's 90% plus of fees are coming from block rewards. Um, and at some point that's going to go away and you need to have more uh, coming from transaction fees. Yeah, I mean, right now it's more like 99% plus. The Bitcoin fees are at a, in Bitcoin terms, at like a decade low. So either way, the trend is not positive there. You need fundamentally more on-chain utilization to backstop security, especially as the issuance decays to zero. And if we're not seeing that utilization, it will soon be time to sound the alarm, I think. And, you know, I used to think, you know, you could have sufficient fees to support security, um, you know, such that the fees would be the sole part of the security budget. But it's clear the fees are cyclical, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum. Fees are just generally very cyclical and they correspond to market cycles and interest and activity. And cyclical fees would mean that in a bear market in the sort of distant future, maybe 10, 20 years from now, that means your security budget goes to almost zero. if the blockchain utilization goes down. So it's not really a sufficient way to backstop security, a fee-only regime. So I, I that mm -hmm. does concern me, to be honest with you. Does that, uh, where does that leave you in terms of this desire to hold Bitcoin? I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm still, you know, pretty content with holding Bitcoin. Um, 
especially given this is a sort of medium long-term problem. I do think there's kind of solutions to that, um, but it's just that you're only going to be able to galvanize political support when it becomes clear to more folks that there's a problem. And uh, some people really don't like the proposed solutions. One, of course, is reinserting issuance. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of like simple approach. Another one would be like recycling old UTXOs, maybe decade old UTXOs back into the security budget. Another one would be kind of uh, a de facto solution, which is large exchanges and custodians become like altruistic miners, which basically backdoors the network into a de facto proof of stake network. And people may not like that. That's actually kind of where I see this going. It's not like a formal switch to proof of stake, but it just Mm -hmm. sort of happens over time. Yeah. Historically, I've thought of you as someone that has been perhaps more in the Bitcoin camp and supporting a lot of the infrastructure there. And um, can you talk a little bit about, I know this is a weekly round, but I'm just very curious of your evolution in thinking in the space. You've been around for a long time, um, particularly towards more recent developments. Like how have recent developments changed your frameworks, your mindset, your thesis, if you will? I'm curious how how you're processing all of the stuff that's going on recently. And it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, you know, over the summer, the Bitcoiners all became very upset with me because it became clear that we invest all over the crypto space and not just Bitcoin. Uh, but that's always been the case since we started our firm in 2018. So there's no nothing new there. I think the intellectual dynamism in the Bitcoin community has decreased. Uh, some Bitcoiners have just defected or become more pluralistic in their outlook. And, um, you know, there's this, uh, this, this trend of sort of Bitcoin fundamentalism, which is really unhelpful overall. I know a lot of Bitcoiners are like claiming vindication with the credit crisis uh, because they tend to be averse to credit and with the FTX crisis. But n- no one really saw FTX coming, to be honest with you. So I don't see that as a win for Bitcoiners. I think it sets back the whole space, Bitcoin yeah. included. And uh, there are a lot of Bitcoin businesses that used FTX as a custodian. So it's not good for Bitcoin either. Um, so I don't see like the Bitcoin community as having like experienced a win throughout this crisis. Like it's just an unmitigated bad situation for everyone in crypto. Um, and I don't see it as pushing newcomers towards Bitcoin. It's just going to push people away from crypto if they trusted FTX and their savings evaporated. So, yeah, I'd like to see more debate in the Bitcoin space, more openness to new ideas um, and, you know, maybe more creative ways to insert Bitcoin on other blockchains to make it more synergistic with the broader crypto space such that Bitcoin can benefit from, you know, interesting new developments that are happening elsewhere, whether that's new models for L1s or interesting L2s, rollups, et cetera. That's kind of what I'd be pushing for yeah. right In many now. ways, that could potentially also alleviate this fee problem, right? Because if Bitcoin becomes a security budget, shared security budget for some of these other blockchains, then perhaps it could share some of the fees of other networks. Um, but, you know, you have the issues of around like wrap Bitcoin and other instances. I mean, at some point, Bitcoin, you know, became a fairly interesting collateral type in DeFi and Ethereum at its peak. I mean, it was like small numbers, like less than 5%, I think, like certainly you know, not where you'd potentially want it to be, but it was interesting that there were some Bitcoiners that started to want to get more utility 
out of their Bitcoin as opposed to just holding it, but you know, just lending it in a decentralized manner that was in accordance with their ethos. Because if you're lending it to Genesis, well, you know, that's a problem. If you're lending it to FTX, it's a problem, right? I think the core values of the Bitcoin community are very much decentralization. And, uh, you know, I was excited. I'm still am about what you just said, which is allowing Bitcoin to be used in some of these other networks, whether it's security or just to give more consumer preference to a Bitcoin holder. It's kind of my current priority is, well, A, reforming the exchange space. So proof of reserve is part of that because I don't think we're going to get away from centralized exchanges anytime soon. And then B, finding ways to allow Bitcoin, the collateral type, to be utilized elsewhere because I do think it has good properties. And the challenge is, are there trustless ways to bridge it over to other chains? Obviously, we saw the failure of a certain kind of wrapped Bitcoin around the FTX issue. Um, so that's just, I think the challenge there is, can you it do always, it in a It always struck me as funny, of, basically the desire of Bitcoiners to get yield on their Bitcoin through things like, I won't actually name names, but like, yeah, basically centralized, these centralized uh, lending platforms. You know, the idea, I brought up the idea uh, to a group of Bitcoiners uh, of, of basically bridging over to Avalanche and getting some yield. You can do like BTCB. Uh, through through the core wallet on, on on Avalanche, and it was like this preposterous idea. Uh, the, the idea of bridging over to Avalanche was like the most ridiculous thing in the world. But giving your assets to FTX, Voyager, Genesis, BlockFi was like this totally normal. Like, yeah, that's that's a safe thing to do. So it just it yeah, it just struck me as funny. Yeah, I mean, it just reinforces the need for actual meaningful DeFi lenders here, whether it's the overcollat orthodox DeFi approach or the new breed of undercollat DeFi lenders uh, where there's some you know portions of centralization, but still yeah. things are much more transparent than these black box centralized mm-hmm. lenders. So, you know, there's a path forward here, which is just returning yeah. to the sort of core values um, of like actual decentralization, like decentralized finance. Yeah. That's the way forward. Nick, now that we've been here. running proof of, uh, now that the merge has happened, We've been running proof of stake for a little while now. Do you have thoughts on just, I mean, this is a really big question here, I'd say, but just proof of stake versus proof of work and like the two, just the two different systems, I guess, now that, we, now that we've seen proof of stake in action for a couple of months. Yeah, I mean, I was concerned about the, um, it, not even strictly a proof of stake problem, but like the influence of MEV in terms of possible censorability um, and the trend there for a while was really concerning. Um, with the, I consider overcompliance, not just OFAC compliance, but overcompliance, as in proactively filtering out transactions. Um, obviously, it never reached saturation on Ethereum, so it wasn't like transactions were never included. But the trend was worrisome there. I think just in the last couple of days, uh, we've seen a real commitment from the Flashbots side of the house to reversing that. So. I have seen a reaction in the Ethereum community, which was encouraging, which is really pushing back at that trend. Uh, but that's like my main like concern or worry about proof of stake is is that it you know does vest a lot of power in the exchanges, custodians, the larger institutions that ended up being intermediaries in that system. And I don't think I think the jury's still out. Uh, is like I want to see how proof of work reacts to a similar um, challenge of, I think MEV will emerge even in Bitcoin, uh, if, especially if it gets mm. more expressive. I would like to see how Bitcoin would react to that. That might be sometime in the future. 
but yeah, that, that's kind of my main thing is one is MEV uh, tends to be a centralizing force. And then two, under proof of stake, are you vesting too much power in the intermediaries? And, you know, we've learned obviously in the last few months here that the intermediaries are kind of not to be trusted. How is, um, how are you positioned, um, you know, as an institutional investor in the space, given everything that's going on, like curious, um, maybe you do this, maybe you don't, but like at the beginning of the year, kind of going into the year, um, we were coming off the high and now where we are now, I'm, I'm curious, um, how you think about the current landscape and where you see, um, you know, the most amount of opportunities. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of just still doing the same thing that we always do. I mean, we don't really try and pick market cycles. Uh, we don't really trade a liquid book. It's really just deploying progressively into startups. So, you know, we do ease off the gas when we see valuations getting extreme and then we put our foot on the accelerator. So we try and be countercyclical, <clears throat> put our foot on the accelerator in a time like this. Um, so, Overall, the strategy is pretty much unchanged. I would say for us right now, big focus mm. on DeFi. I think DeFi is really distressed. You know, um, it's really out of favor overall. People are kind of really questioning it. So I like that space right now. In particular, I like the new breed of lenders that are trying to rebuild crypto credit from scratch in a more trusted way, in a more accountable way. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we're looking at a lot of uh, tools to promote, you know, crypto dollarization, uh, you know, safe and responsible wallet, non-custodial wallet usage, especially as, you know, these currency crises occur. So kind of the same mm -hmm. strategy as ever for us. And now valuations start to look more reasonable, founder expectations mm -hmm. more reasonable. So, um, you know, we're, we're glad that we have a lot of dry powder to deploy do here. You, do you think that crypto has a UX problem? I was, it's, I don't know if I characterize it as UX problem. It's sort of like an inherent issue is that like, we're talking about digital bearer assets. So, you know, if you want someone to really own these things, they have to be comfortable with like the OPSEC challenges of holding information, which is tied to value. And I don't know if I want that to be solved with slick UIs or anything. We, I think we need to you know, develop better tools such as, you know, regular users, unsophisticated users can safely transact. And I think a lot of that involves MPC, you know, more sophisticated schemes that look like Web2 authentication schemes, um, you know, better wallet recovery such that you're not just writing down 24 mm -hmm. words on a piece of paper. I don't think this ever goes mainstream if we're mm -hmm. writing down, uh, you know, seed yeah. phrases on paper. So yeah, I, I am really optimistic yeah, about definitely. what I'm seeing right now. I mean, you kind of had like solutions like social recovery, Argent, and what have you, which I thought would have gained way more traction by now. But you know, I think these things take time. Um, you're someone that is close to, you know, traditional institutional players like Fidelities of the world. I think they you you have a strong voice in the space, and I'm curious like what you're hearing out there in terms of. Um, you know, how much of the current development slow down institutional adoption? And this is something that we talk about over the years. And do you, A, believe that institutional adoption, uh, how would you characterize it as, as the importance of it? And two, like, how much of the current developments, like what is going through the minds of Fidelity, Schwab, JP Morgan now that given everything that's going on? 
I mean, the FTX crisis might change some things because it has shaken confidence in the industry. So we'll see. Um, but aside from that, I would say this year overall has been positive institutionally. Fidelity finally went live with their retail crypto product after you know mm -hmm. sitting on that for years and years. BlackRock has finally begun to you know actually dive into the space. You're seeing custodians like BNY Mellon finally make a play. And the major investment banks, I would say, have also shown a resurgence of interest. So those kinds of institutions, the kind of asset managers, I think they've finally actually mm -hmm. made their way into crypto. The institutions that might step back would be like Sequoia's. the allocators, yeah. pension funds, endowments. Yeah, like you know, large pools of private equity maybe that were allocating crypto directly or through venture funds. Yeah. So I think institutional allocators might take a breather for sure. On this point, um, you know, macro aside, but, you know, if and when allocators are more risk on and they come to crypto, um, what do you think the allocation looks like in terms of historically, it's been very centric and weighted towards Bitcoin, uh, whereas some allocators like have expressly not touched anything other than Bitcoin. Maybe it's because of a number of reasons. Um regulation being one of them. But how do you see that ratio and dynamic in the next cycle? Or when I say the next cycle is when allocators are on a risk-on mode um, and come back to allocate to to the asset class? Yeah, I mean, for the first time for these like non-crypto larger allocators, I'm seeing a more of a preference for Ethereum as like their first foray into the, into the crypto space, into, into spot exposure. I think Bitcoin still has a role to play. And then I think, you know, the L1, the new L1 trade, that's a little bit played out. I don't know if people necessarily trust those after we saw what happened to Terra and Solana to a certain degree. I don't know if there's going to be faith in the emergence of these new L1s and this constant L1 churn anymore. So I think it's going to be more of a function of what's robust, what has meaningful security and staying power and liquidity in developers and applications. And I think it's just going to be a preference towards just the more developed, larger established chains. I guess the last question for me is on this point, uh, there's a lot of discussion around the future of Solana. We're going to have an episode next week or in the next in the coming weeks with uh, Anatoly and Ben who runs BD there. What has been your observation? How have you been involved or not in the Solana ecosystem Certainly, FTX and Sam played a big role from a BD standpoint of putting it on the map of of institutions and the DeFi ecosystem. There, um, what do you think is the the future of Solana, and is that an ecosystem that you're looking at? Have been investing in? Yeah, we've we've allocated to the Solana space um, for sure. That's probably the third uh, the third ecosystem for us. Um, it, oh. I think the FTX influence was meaningful, but if anything, Jump Crypto was more the steward of that ecosystem. Um, I do perceive that it has exit velocity in its own right. I think they can survive the loss of confidence here. It's obviously painful in terms of the very rapid liquidation of the Solana held by Alameda, FTX, et cetera. But I, in terms of sort of like the grassroots enthusiasm for Solana Dev and applications and like their own little DeFi 
ecosystem, I definitely see that as sticking around. No question mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. Um, as a ca- you know, maybe as a casual observer that comes into the space, like we're talking about Solana, and sometimes we over intellectualize things. You know, as it stands, Solana is you know on a circulating basis, you know, like the seventeenth largest network. But ahead of that, you have stuff like Shiba Inu. You have Polkadot, you have Dogecoin, Cardano, Ripple. Like, these are some of the names that if you were to ask me like two years ago, I would have said, like, I think we would have come farther in the in the market cap tables where, you know, you would have seen networks that are seeing much more ap- applications and developers kind of move up the ranks. But somehow... <laughs> somehow meme power uh, has staying power and and legacy networks that have kind of failed to really ship much have continued to hold their ground like do you see that as like a bit demoralizing and this goes to the heart of the question that i think a lot of us ask us ask ourselves in in current market environment which is like where are we going as an industry like and and this is just sort of like a 24-7 stock market and people like to speculate and has meme entertainment value and maybe that's okay and we should be more transparent and like tr- honest about that. I'm curious, like, as you look Santi, at- you're saying you're, you're saying you don't like the fact that Litecoin is, uh, has a higher market cap than Solana right now? Like Litecoin's ripping now because of the happening next year or something. Like, it, it, I'm just saying like it sometimes can be a bit frustrating to see that for some folks. Like if you're a network that is- like all of DeFi has super powerful properties that I think are not fully understood. Like, but it's been in a bear market for the last two years. And I understand this recursive leverage has gone away and yield farming is is not a thing anymore. But but it has real value and some core like use cases, yet collectively, what, like, I don't know, Ripple is probably worth more than 80% of DeFi. Um, which pretends to be like a, you know, the app of the future for, for DeFi Cardano, like Cardano and Ripple combined and Litecoin probably are worth more than all of DeFi. I just, I just look at that and I get excited because I think that's the art that you believe in today that others will believe in over time. But man, it's just been taking a while to like rinse off a lot of the crap that continues to exist. Yeah. I mean, as an, as an allocator, I think that works to our advantage, really, if we see something that the market doesn't, right? And so I don't worry too much about the relative valuation against the more like retail focused like coins, which are solely their valuation is solely derived from like the their founder's ability to, you know, attract uh, you know new retail investors or anything. For me, it's just a question of, you know, can these all ones define you know serious accretion mechanics you know like i would say that's the big win of ethereum is they were able to create this actual meaningful narrative as as to Mm -hmm. why the coin should have value and build those into the protocol directly the question is can the other l1s do that if you have a vibrant DeFi ecosystem i think your prospects Mm -hmm. are a lot better but we still need to work out a good Mm -hmm. theory of valuation here um, so that's kind of the challenge I would put in Solana's yeah. core is can you take advantage of like the momentum and traction you have and actually convert that into yeah. sort of enduring value? Uh, this will be my last question, I promise, which is um, how do you think about like what were some of the 
perhaps com- it could be a company or a thesis that you had, you know, call it two years ago, beginning of the bowl that has taken longer that you would have thought would like be a killer use case or would materialize, gain much more traction than it hasn't today. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Um, when we we looked at uh, the early FTX rounds and we didn't do it, actually, um, I'm not going to beat my chest or anything, but basically we thought starting a new offshore exchange was too sketchy and too difficult from like 2018 onwards. And we did uh, an Air, we did the RSX deal, which was a bet on onshore, highly regulated crypto exchanges. And for a long time, that looked like totally the wrong call. I don't know if it was or wasn't, but uh, that was kind of our bet: is we were betting on the regulated crypto onshore market outcompeting the offshore market. For a while, that went the other way. Now, I think you could make the case that. That there will be this meaningful distinction between the onshore lit market and the offshore market. So that was one where we kind of beat ourselves up over it for a long time. But I think probably now it's the case that it's going to be really hard to build a new offshore exchange post FTX collapse. So yeah, I would say that's the thesis that I always thought would play out would be, you know, the crypto industry would just become more accountable, more surveilled, uh, not in the bad way, but just you know, more meaningfully incorporated with the, with the like domestic financial industry. I think maybe that's, you know, hopefully that's sort of like the path forward. Do you think that given recent events compress the timeline to get more regulatory clarity, which has been kind of non-existent in the space for a long time? Yeah, undoubtedly. But it's on us to like advocate for ourselves in Washington and make sure that, the clarity is, you know, actually helpful to the industry and, you know, helps for consumer protection, things like that, as opposed to just being super burdensome and forcing the industry out of the U.S. further. Nick, I want to wrap um, by just talking about proof of reserves for a second. You had this line, I think you said it on Twitter. You said, if there's a, if there's a single thing I could do better, uh, I think that this industry could do better. It would be to convince every custodial service provider in the space to adopt a routine proof of reserve program. Can you just explain your rationale behind that. I, I remember you writing about proof of reserves back in like 2019 or 2018. So I'd, I'd love to just hear you expand on that. Yeah. And the real benefit. And so when I talk about proof of reserves, I am referring to both sides. So I'm talking about proving your ownership of crypto assets plus liabilities. I think it's incomplete without the liabilities. And, and most people note that. Maybe we need to rebrand it to PORL, proof of reserves and liabilities, because there's a lot of confusion or solvency. Solvency is also hard, though, because that requires a full audit of all the possible liabilities. There may be additional encumbrances. But yeah, I mean, I think proof of reserves really shines when you don't have strong legal assurances. Like with Coinbase, for instance, we can kind of know based on their audits, the fact that they're publicly traded. They have a big four auditor, Deloitte. Uh, So we kind of know that what they're saying is legit, even if they're not doing it in a cryptographic way. Proof of reserves shines where you don't have those legal assurances, where you would prefer um, a cryptographic attestation over nothing. And so I think it's really relevant for the offshore exchanges, of which there are still many. And encouragingly, we just saw OKCoin release a proof of reserve 
attestation today, including the liabilities. So they'd be a prime example. I would say Binance is also in this camp, the prime example of a firm where the end users gain a ton of confidence in their solvency if they can carry out this attestation, especially if they're not ever going to be a U.S. publicly traded company or anything like that. So, you know, for all of those offshore ones, I think they really don't have a choice. They probably have to do this now. Uh, for the onshore ones, I would say it's less urgent. But yeah, I'm really excited. I, I've heard that there's you know at least two dozen exchanges that are looking at doing a proof reserve now. I think that does go a long way towards winning back confidence, especially as it's been shadowed yeah. by the FTX. For this to work, do you need use, do you need both users to verify their individual balances in some way, like like this herd immunity and a third party auditor, or like how, what is the uh, mechanism by that, like how that works? Yeah. There's a bunch of different schemes. So BitMEX and OKCoin, those were users could verify them, but they didn't bring in a third-party auditor. For mm. Kraken, they did bring in a third-party auditor, but just to make sure that the liability extraction was complete. But yeah, in theory, if you're doing the procedure right, you don't actually need an auditor. But uh, you know, I, if it were up to me, if I were defining like a ideal proof of reserve, it certainly would include an auditor just to make sure that you're not uh, playing any games with the mm -hmm. liability side. You know, I guess on this point, uh, do you think, I mean, you had like Enron, like you have Arthur Anderson, like I think like to me, it's a bit shocking. How much, I guess, without introducing my bias, I guess, how much do you buy this by do, by having this attestation? It's like a security concern. Seems to be like the excuse of why they're not doing um, this attestation. Like to me, that. It's a bit of bullshit, but I'm curious to get your opinion. I mean, I do totally acknowledge that the current Merkleized way exchanges do the liability side leaks some information, not necessarily personal identification information, not PII, but it does leak info as to the relative ownership and the different kind of assets people have, and then the change over time if you're doing it on an ongoing basis. If you're leak, if you're releasing a huge data set of a uh, hundred million entries, there will be some ability to do some forensic accounting and find interesting info in that. I'm bullish on like zk proofs yeah. for liabilities. Vitalik had a good post on it recently. There have been papers on it. I think that should be the path forward. Um, in terms of the, you know, does it, um, you know, trade off against existing custodial setups? I think that's true. Um, it's just that we're in this transitional phase. People didn't configure their custody such that they'd be able to easily export the liabilities and the assets. And so it may well be the case that they feel that there's an issue or possibly a slight risk with signing transactions frequently mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, so I get that. But I think exchanges are just going to have to reconfigure their back end such that they could more easily do these procedures in the future. Just feels like we're playing all the doing all these like workaround um, solutions for these centralized exchanges when we have the solution with decentralized exchanges. And 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 I don't know. I think I think it was Vitalik in his post at the end and the conclusion. He's like, I could see a world where we basically end up having dexes and then centralized exchanges that are like half custodial, where maybe we trust them with our fiat. With their, but then the crypto is held in the smart contract or something. Feels like a good solution.
Yeah, I do sort of agree with Nick, though. I think that we should just assume and build with the assumption that centralized exchanges are always going to play a role in this industry for on-ramp, off-ramp, KYC, AML, a number of reasons. And so I think we should just hold them to yeah. the same standard uh, that we know and can with the tools that we have. Like, you know, there should be no excuse for any exchange not to have proof of reserves and liability. And it's not that hard or costly to do, to be honest. So it's a small thing and it does win a lot of user trust. So not a lot of downside, exactly. a lot of upside. I want to wrap with one question here, Nick, which is uh, first I want to give a plug to your SS podcast because on the, on the brink is uh, if folks don't listen to on the brink. People should listen to it. Um, but you and Matt tend to agree on most things, but sometimes I hear in your guys' voice that may, maybe you're disagreeing on, on some things. So I'm just, I wanted to just ask it as a question, which is what, what, what's the big thing that you and Matt disagree on these days as you think about investing in this bear market? Yeah, good question. I mean, we have political <laughs> oh, disagreements, that's for sure. <laughs> but I won't, uh, I won't surface those here. Um, I would say probably disagreements in terms of the relative pace we should going we should be going so like do we think things are fairly valued now or should we sort of wait longer to have you know founder expectations come back to reality um which uh l1 we should be spending more time on um but yeah you're right we we agree on a lot Matt's focus tends to be more on the sort of uh, intersection of traditional finance and crypto, and mine tends to be more sort of on pure crypto, I would say. But um, yeah, that's why we've been able to stay in business together for yeah. four years. I guess the disagreements aren't too no, uh, too and disagreements critical. are good. Like, and I just disagree all the time. What? Uh, who? Who wants to go faster right now? What's the? You want to be allocating? He doesn't want to be allocating. You. Got, what's the disagreement? I would say, yeah, I'm generally on the side of taking on more risk. And uh, and right now, I, I see a ton of opportunity in the market, both liquid crypto and you know venture capital, private equity. So it reminds me of 2018, which was an incredible time to deploy. Yeah. So nice. yeah, I'm cool, going to Well, we're rooting for you. Um, any last thoughts here before we wrap? No, I mean, uh, I will be writing more in proof of reserves. Stay tuned. I know there's a ton of new attestations coming out. It's not a panacea. I do want to combine it with other like legal assurances. So, you know, segregating client assets from operating capital, maintaining the seniority of depositors in the liquidation situation. So it alone isn't sufficient. It's kind of part of a payload of things. Uh, but yeah, stay tuned on the proof of reserve front. Lots of exciting stuff happening there. Cool. Nick, thanks for joining us, man. Hope you have a good Thanksgiving. Hope you have uh Enjoy the, the the bird clock that's chirping in the background. And uh, yeah, man, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for the time, guys. <laughs> Good chatting. Thanks so much for coming on, Nick. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone.